The final topic of our program is a summary and commentary on papers focusing on genitourinary tumors, and Dr. Nicholas Vogelsang began by commenting on several prostate cancer papers. This is the second paper on the subject of PSA as a surrogate for survival. The first was reported by Petrolac in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. This paper from Petrolac examined the SWOG trial of docetaxel versus metoxantron. This trial, the Armstrong paper, examined PSA surrogacy in the three-arm trial of docetaxel weekly versus docetaxel three-weekly versus metoxantron. What they identified here is that using the Prentice criteria, which suggests that or hypothesizes that a treatment has an effect on the overall endpoint, namely survival, and a surrogate endpoint, namely PSA decline, they asked the question of what percentage of PSA decline explained the improvement in survival. It's a complicated question, hard to answer easily without a lot of detailed statistics, but What they ultimately found was that PSA could decline by greater than 30%, or PSA decline of 30% or greater by three months was a very good predictor of prolonged survival. Obviously, greater decline got closer and closer to more accurate survival. It's a complicated question. But in fact, we probably can use 30% decline in the clinic to tell patients that this is a good thing. Is that sort of your clinical impression? Does that seem to, for example, correlate with relief of symptoms? It does. This is not to be taken independently of pain. Pain decrease is even more powerful. So if you get a pain response, that independently predicts for survival. But PSA change and pain together well reflect a improvement in survival to be expected with docetaxel. Now, this issue of PSA as a marker of disease bulk, so to speak, has been a controversial in terms of hormone therapy of prostate cancer, in terms of whether or not it could affect the marker without actually affecting the tumor. What do we know about chemotherapy in terms of you know, affecting the marker as a separate issue? It appears that, in fact, no question that the chemotherapy lowers the PSA and at the same time lowers the tumor bulk. These correlate very closely, a pain response and a PSA response and objective response, and then ultimately survival. Now, they looked at a variety of other endpoints. So predictors of a PSA decline also were measured as decrease in ALKFAS, increase in hemoglobin, a variety of things. But all of them could be summarized as independent variables with PSA decline of greater than 30% being as independent and as powerful as you could. It only explains 60% of the survival benefit, but it does explain 60% of the survival benefit. Okay, I want to go on to a couple papers on endocrine therapy, and a lot of times oncologists don't actually see patients until they're through androgen deprivation, but hopefully they'll be more involved with those decisions. And one was an eagerly awaited data from EORTC trial 22961. Can you talk about what that trial looked at and what they just reported? Well, this is the third trial reported by Michael Bola, so you have to be very careful not to call it the Bola trial anymore. 
in this trial, the first BOLA trial, which compared no hormone therapy with radiation to hormone therapy of three years with radiation, is now compared to BOLA-2. In this trial, it is a three year of hormones with radiation. The radiation is 7,000 rads, which is still a little low by U.S. standards, with six months of hormone therapy. Now, what was remarkable here is that instead of, as we would have expected, equivalent survival, the six-month hormone treatment was associated with a decreased survival. It was a rather strikingly positive trial, suggesting that letting up on the hormone therapy in these relatively locally advanced and poor-risk prostate cancer patients is going to give you a decrease in survival. The comment made by Dr. Tannock was that, well, we've clearly made progress. We cannot back off of hormone therapy. Three years is now the gold standard, in Europe anyway, and it's probably two years in the United States, for this particular bad-risk subgroup of locally advanced prostate cancer. Interestingly, the global quality of life did not improve by being on only six months of hormones. They could not measure a difference between the three years and the six months. You know, that concept of the longer the therapy is, of course, we've been all through this in breast cancer with tamoxifen and now the aromatase inhibitors. To me, it seems like there's a bunch of pieces of evidence that suggest that there might be a correlation between duration of endocrine therapy and what, you know, I would call sort of the adjuvant setting in this kind of a trial. Seems like there's been a fairly consistent story. Is that your take? I'm beginning to feel very strongly about it. Remember, though, that this is a fairly poor-risk subgroup. 75% of these patients had bulky T3 disease. Over 40% had Gleason 7 or 8. The median PSA here was 18. Many of these patients will be seen in conjunction with the radiation therapist and the urologist, And most of them will come to the medical oncologists in consultation with the radiation oncologist saying, look, I've got a guy with advanced disease. Will you give hormone therapy with Lupron? If the radiation oncologist doesn't do Lupron in his office, this will fall on the medical oncology plate. The patients were treated with only LHRH agonist. So I still believe that the addition of Casidex adds to the benefit. So we may even see more benefit with the addition of bicalutamide with LHRH agonist. And there are trials out there that have looked at maximal androgen blockade. What about paper 5015 looking at the pretty controversial issue of intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation in advanced disease? This paper was presented by the German group Curtin Miller. It was an interesting presentation, short, sweet, and we were sort of surprised at how quickly he ended Bottom line is they could not detect a whit of difference between intermittent and continuous hormone therapy. The difference, though, is that only 40% of patients were metastatic. The intermittent versus continuous story does not appear to show a difference in localized disease. But in metastatic disease, there are conflicting pieces of data. And therefore, for true metastatic disease, giving a break in the hormone therapy is still controversial. 
So most of us are now willing to say that for purely adjuvant or locally advanced disease, continuous with intermittent periods off is fine. But for metastatic disease, giving intermittent hormone therapy may be risky still. We just need more data, and that data will soon come from the SWOG trial, which has over 2,000 patients on it. And I guess the issue, too, is obviously quality of life here. And it reminds me a little bit about some of the debates that are going on in colon cancer about the so-called Optimox-type strategy where the chemotherapy holidays are given. In your own experience, how long does it usually take for men to start feeling better, so to speak, to kind of recover from the impact of androgen deprivation? It usually takes about six months. The problem is that at the end of six months, the testosterone is rising, they're beginning to get a sense of well-being, and lo and behold, within another couple of months, their PSA rises and their anxiety level goes up again. And this study, again, confirmed the same problem that a time-off study is greatest in the people with localized disease. Time-off hormone therapy is quite short in patients with metastatic disease. So I think you just have to be cautious in giving intermittent hormone therapy for patients with metastatic disease. There was, in fact, a subgroup analysis of patients with D2 disease suggesting that there was a trend towards inferiority for intermittent hormone therapy in the metastatic setting. Let's talk about paper 5017. Most of the time when hormonal therapies first use, it's actually in a situation of rising PSA. And let me just ask you before we get into this next paper, what are your thoughts about intermittent androgen deprivation in men with PSA-only disease? I actually believe that that is the most likely beneficial time for these patients. The intermittent hormone therapy for localized disease seems to be associated with an improved quality of life certainly reduction in cardiovascular toxicity, although we don't have proof of that yet. I will, however, still balance that against the data from the Miller paper and others that suggest that you still need three years of adjuvant hormone therapy. Whether or not you can get a full three years with intermittent is another question. And so at the end of the Miller presentation, he said, okay, so the next study and the BOLA study also said the same thing. The next study may be a three-year continuous versus three-year intermittent. Let's talk a little bit about paper 5017, which looks at the challenging situation of who to treat with PSA-only disease. We've seen a lot of interest in the issue of PSA doubling time clinically to try to make that decision. Can you talk about this paper, which looked at a tissue biomarker panel? It was a very challenging paper to read and also a very challenging paper to hear because he took a long time getting to the punchline. But effectively, what they've done is they've taken a series of genes and shown that these genes, there's about 144 genes, are associated with outcome that is reproducibly giving you an adverse outcome. And this is a proprietary gene set called Dazzle. I love the name, D-A-S-L. And they can, with this gene set, predict PSA recurrence compared to controls in a big data set. This is not a small data set. It's, I forget the number, but it's from Mayo Clinic. And it predicts with considerable degree of accuracy the outcomes. 
Now, they managed to get it down to a 17-gene probe set, and they identified most of the genes, but not all of them were what you would consider obvious. They were some very unobvious. But the bottom line is, is that genes in the area of the 8Q24 were associated with a much greater likelihood of cancer progression. This is consistent with what we know about the genetics of prostate cancer, namely that the 8Q24 locus appears to be associated with early and rapid onset of prostate cancer. So perhaps this Dazzle gene set can be used prospectively. They did a magnificent job in controlling for as many variables as they could in this big data set, but of course, it's still retrospective. So would the natural thought then be, if you can make this sort of prognostication up front, why not just go ahead and treat them before they have PSA progression? Exactly. And that is exactly what everyone is doing in breast cancer as well. It's the same model. You identify the poor actors up front and intensify therapy. It's a little more challenging in prostate cancer because we don't have proof that chemotherapy or things like Herceptin have a role in prostate. We have only a few tools, namely adjuvant radiation and adjuvant hormones. So even if we can identify the poor risk group, it's not clear that we have tools to modify the outcome. Let's talk a little bit about paper 5018, looking at atrocentin. What is atrocentin and what did they report? Atrocentin has been studied by Abbott and the folks there since 1996. It's an ET or endothelin receptor antagonist, oral bioavailable molecule, developed initially for hypertension and is able to block an overexpressed receptor commonly found in prostate cancer cells. The overexpression of this protein was discovered in the semen of patients, and then when a serum assay was developed, the patients were found to have very high concentration of this semen-type protein in their blood. Blocking of that antigen or of that receptor with this small molecule was clearly in preclinical models, animals, and in cell lines able to diminish the growth rate of prostate cancer. In early trials of about 270 patient randomized phase 2, they established that a dose of 10 milligrams per day of atrocentin was apparently able to modulate the PSA level, decrease the rate of rise, as well as decrease the bone ALK-FOS rate of rise. They then did two very large phase 3 trials, and this is the second one reported. The first one was reported several years ago in metastatic disease and unfortunately was negative. This trial in non-metastatic disease also unfortunately was negative. There's a lot of reasons for the trial to be negative. There was a very modest two-month improvement, two-and-a-half-month improvement in median survival, and in fact the drug did attenuate PSA rise and did attenuate the bone ALK-FOS rise, there were an early set of dropouts, and the authors and discussants pointed out that the U.S. investigators were very quick to take patients off study. The study did have an open-label period so that if you took people off drug, they could then go on true non-placebo. The ability to distinguish 
placebo from active drug was relatively easy because of the development of edema, runny nose, and a little bit of hypotension. In a small fraction of patients, there was the development of mild fluid overload leading to mild congestive heart failure, although no patients died of the heart failure. So the point was it was a non-statistically significant improvement in survival. The U.S. investigators took people off more quickly than the European investigators. The trial was positive for the European patients because they kept the patients on longer. The U.S. trial was negative, and therefore overall the trial was negative. So it seems like they're still going to pursue this, though, from what I can tell in terms of trying to look at this now with docetaxel? They are. I think this is a bit disappointing for patients primarily because the drug is so well tolerated. It would be ideal to have a single oral drug, but it didn't really do much. The ability to add to the benefit of chemotherapy needs to be studied It should be an extremely easy trial to do, chemotherapy with or without a pill. There's no drug interactions that we're aware of. The study is ready and open, so I'm hoping that maybe atrocentin will still find a role in prostate cancer. But this trial was a pretty deep body blow to inhibiting that pathway for prostate cancer. You know, not to draw too many analogies outside of prostate, although I'm always compelled to do that. You know, I think about trastuzumab. And the estimates have been in terms of, suppose we didn't have HER2 measurement and we just gave trastuzumab to all comers and we probably wouldn't have seen the effect. Do you think that maybe some of the issue here is we can't figure out who might benefit from this drug? That's very true. In fact, in some subset analyses that I've seen, I don't know if they actually published it, but the benefit is confined strictly to those with bone metastases. And unfortunately, they were not able to predict who was going to develop bone metastases. Now, the median PSA on study was only 13, and the patients were not to have evidence of metastatic disease. It was a rising PSA hormone refractory. Median survival, by the way, was over four years. So if your PSA is 13, you still got a long time to go. But unfortunately, we know that a percentage of those patients will develop soft tissue metastases, liver, lung, and lymph node metastases, and we have no way to do it. So I tend to agree. If we had a way to measure ETA in the tissue or in the serum, and it correlated with atrocentin therapy benefit, we would have potentially a drug like trastuzumab. Now, shortly before that paper was presented was another study presented looking at satroplatin. Can you talk about what was seen there and whether that was any more encouraging than what was seen with atrocentin? Well, I want to give a disclosure. I've been asked to consult with GPC Biotech on their submission at the FDA, so I'm conflicted. And I will simply state that the trial as outlined has, for the first time, established a therapy for second-line chemotherapy that is consistently showing a benefit across all subgroups. We have had evidence that platinum, either carbo or cis, or even oxali, has consistent activity in prostate cancer ever since Claude Marin in 1976 published in Cancer Treatment Reports. But the evidence was never consistent. And so with this placebo-controlled trial of an oral bioavailable platinator compared to prednisone alone as second line, there was a substantial reduction in the hazard ratio. And the benefit gets better with time. 
The benefit was for, apparently, a platinum-sensitive subset, and that is the subset that has substantial benefit. In summary, the drug is non-cross-resistant. It was extremely well-tolerated. The study was impeccably controlled and independently monitored. When the IRC, or Independent Review Committee, data was looked at, that external committee had the data that I reported. But when you talked to the investigators and used investigator-assessed time-to-progressive disease, there was a much more striking improvement for the median survival and for the median time to progression as assessed by pain. Overall, survival is not yet available, and they're going to the FDA with this in July as an intermediate endpoint. So we believe that this drug has now a role in prostate cancer, failing docetaxel, or other chemotherapies as first line. The other thing about their presentation was it looked like it was quite well tolerated. Extremely well. The number of patients who had peripheral neuropathy, for example, could barely be distinguished. There was some leukopenia. The biggest effect of the drug is thrombocytopenia, causing a slight drug delay. The drug is given for five days every five weeks. It's given at 80 milligram per meter squared dosing. I don't know what the actual pill size is going to be. And there is a statistically significant drop in the platelet count in virtually everyone. So it was very hard to blind the investigators to the active versus placebo drug. In the situation of a obvious drug effect, namely thrombocytopenia, you would expect the investigators to be somewhat biased. So the independent review committee was blinded to the PSA changes and to the platelet counts and to the white counts. And therefore, even with that degree of blinding, the Independent Review Committee continued to see an improvement in pain, objective progression, and bone-related events or skeletal-related events. So I think the weight of evidence suggests that this drug has an effect not in much more than a 50% of the population. And I guess the next question is, where is the next area for study? You would think you should be able to combine it with docetaxel pretty reasonably. Oh, yeah. George Wilding at the University of Wisconsin is actively looking at the combination. It's like any other chemotherapy and any other drug that causes thrombocytopenia. Those are kind of hard drugs to combine with standard chemo. So if you remember the days of nitrosyureas, we could very poorly combine nitrosyureas with other drugs because of the thrombocytopenia. So we'll see. George and his phase one team are working on it. I suspect that you're going to have to attenuate the docetaxel. Speaking of docetaxel, there was an update to the TAX-327 study also presented. Can you talk about what that trial looked at and what they're reporting here? This trial was the pivotal trial that allowed docetaxel to be approved by the FDA. Ian Tannock, Mario Eisenberger, and Ron DeWitt were the primary authors on the New England Journal of Medicine paper. Dr. Berthold is the primary author on this abstract, and he is a fellow working with Dr. Tannock. And effectively, they updated the survival. And basically, it continues to show the same results, namely that the docetaxel has a median survival now of about 19 months. The weekly docetaxel has a median survival of 17 months and mitoxantrone about 16 and a half months. There's no question that the overall survival hazard ratio continues to favor the every three-week docetaxel. 
So that's really the take-home message, that the data continue to be robust. Even at three-year follow-up, the standard therapy of every three-week dose of Taxil should be continued. Can you comment also on the updated data in terms of symptom relief? Well, they reported in the previous ASCO that the improvement in pain was a substantial independent predictor. And in fact, the same data was shown here. For patients who had pain, which was, I believe, about 40% or so of the patients, a statistically significant improvement in survival was seen for those who had a reduction in pain regardless of the arm that they were on. In fact, the pain response was more powerful than the treatment arm. So regardless of which arm you were on, a pain diminution predicted improvement in survival. In your own clinical experience, do you have sort of a ballpark figure in your mind about what fraction of patients, assuming they're in pretty decent shape, will have symptom improvement or pain relief with docetaxel in the metastatic setting? In general, the data give us about a 40% objective response rate, and that is measured by PSA. So when you see PSA decline rates of 70 or 80%, you have to be a little bit skeptical those are probably very healthy patients. So in these big randomized phase three trials, PSA responses of 40% and generally pain responses of 40% are expected, somewhat less depending upon the performance status and the degree of PSA elevation. So if your PSA is 1,000, the likelihood is not as good as if your PSA is 50 or 60. But in general, a good half of the patients have palliation measured by decreased pain, decreased fatigue, and improved sense of well-being. Can you talk a little bit about paper number 5067 that looked at the issue of estramustine and whether or not that's helpful in this situation? That was an interesting paper. I went by it fairly quickly because it was like, okay, I'm glad somebody did it. In fact, when I was standing at the poster, someone came up and said, huh, I'm surprised this group actually did the study. It was done in Belgium, and it was not a large trial. It was randomized phase two, effectively, of 150 patients. But it was docetaxel versus docetaxel estramustine, and there was not any evidence that estramustine added to the docetaxel. And moreover, the toxicity profile was adverse when estramustine was added. So as many of us have already clinically decided the estramustine doesn't add much and, in fact, probably detracts from the docetaxel. Let's talk a little bit about paper 5059, looking at a randomized trial of active cellular immunotherapy. This poster as well by Tom Beer. It looked at the Cipulucel T product in patients who were androgen-sensitive and who had a PSA-only recurrence after a radical prostatectomy. The trial randomized men 2 to 1 to Cipulucel T or to placebo, and the standard treatment was given, namely week 0, 2, and 4. So within a five-week period, all of the therapy is delivered. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly Cepulucel T is? Sure. The patients undergo a leukophoresis. The leukophoresis product is white cell. It is shipped to the processing plant around the country. There's several. And in the active stimulation arm, 
the dendritic cell fraction of the leukapheresis product is then stimulated with a fusion protein that is prostatic acid phosphatase linked to GMCSF. So effectively, the GMCSF stimulates the dendritic cells to become antigen-presenting cells for PAP. The PAP is found on 98% of prostate cancer cells. These dendritic cells then stimulate the migration of T cells into the prostate cancer tissue. So the response is ultimately a T cell cytotoxic response that may take up to four months or longer to develop, much like in an allotransplant. So what do they see in this paper? Well, they didn't see much, which was disappointing. The biochemical failure-free, the confirmed biochemical failure, the time-to-distant failure, all were showing no benefit. The hazard ratio was 0.93. There was maybe a slight trend to delay in biochemical failure, but it was not a strikingly positive trial. What this means is unclear. As the Howard Scher and Maha Hussein letters to the cancer letter have said, this is not yet ready for prime time. Is there anything going on in terms of immunotherapy for prostate cancer that you think is more encouraging? The only trials that are in the same level of phase three are the cell genesis trials. They have two trials, vital one and vital two. I believe Vital One is docetaxel versus their immunotherapy with GVAX, and Vital Two is docetaxel in both arms, with one of the arms getting GVAX. And I use the word GVAX because it's their brand name. It basically consists of two prostate cell lines that are human, transfected with GMCSF, and then radiated so that they cannot proliferate. The cells are administered as intradermal vaccinations on the thigh over a period of time. The cells arrive in a large dry ice container of about three feet high in a liquid nitrogen container. So these cells have to be processed carefully. They require space. The pharmacy has to monitor them, etc. That's the farthest along. There are a number of other ones, but none of them are as far along as that one. The last paper I want to ask you about is 5062, and we were talking before about this issue of duration of hormonal therapy in prostate cancer. Can you talk about this paper that looked at an RTOG study? That's an interesting paper. They, again, looked at the question in the RTOG study, the famous Pillipitch study of 9531, and reported that in spite of all their analysis, The patients who stayed on hormone therapy longest, and the patients were allowed to come off because it's a free country, the patients that stayed on the longest had the best outcome. And they cut the data at a variety of points, but the six-year on-hormone study seemed to be the best. I must say that this is reminiscent of the Mayo Clinic data that you may recall where patients with D1 disease were immediately castrated intraoperatively. They had patients with advanced local disease who, when advanced local disease was discovered pathologically, were castrated. And those patients now have been followed in a cohort study of 700 patients or so for nearly 15 years. 
their survival is amazing, and it exceeds that of the age-matched controls. Not prostate-matched, but age-matched controls. No one has ever been able to do a study like that, certainly not a randomized trial of castration versus no castration other than SWOG. But this is somewhat confirmatory of that Mayo Clinic data. And I would, again, add it to the BOLA-2 study that we talked about, stating that the BOLA-2 study said three years was better than six months. And this study from the RTOG says six years is better than less than six years. So keep it as a warning signal not to let up on the hormone therapy too quickly. And when you talk about castration and surgical castration, I guess the point there is that it's indefinite you know, therapy as opposed to LHRH agonists, which usually has an endpoint, or that the, somehow surgical castration has some advantage? No, surgical castration has no advantage in terms of biochemical benefit, but it's irreversible. So the patients stay continuously castrated, and the LHRH agonists, there may be fluctuation, and in addition, the patients may come off of it. And so in this study, it was using gucerolin monthly, and the patients were allowed at their discretion to stop study. You know, the other database that's kind of interesting related to this issue of duration was the work by Anthony D'Amico looking at the effective length of how long people are actually suppressed as opposed to how long they get the LHRH agonist. We know that after the therapy stopped, depending upon the patient's age, they may continue for quite a long period, even indefinitely, to have no testosterone available. What were your thoughts about that work? I'm a big fan of Anthony's and of that work. The work was initially described at Case Western and Marty Resnick's group, where a protracted period of time off LHRH agonist still did not allow the testosterone to recover, particularly in the over 75 population. That data has been replicated now repeatedly. So in fact, when we talk about intermittent hormone therapy, we really shouldn't talk about the duration of LHRH agonist. We should simply talk about the duration of testosterone suppression. That's a much more accurate way to assess it. And in fact, it's true that these men may never recover their testosterone. I have a patient who was on hormones from 98 to 2003. He stopped hormones for localized disease. He is now four and a half years out, and his testosterone is still at 80. Now, that's not castrate, but it's also not a normal testosterone level.